The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I want to do something a little bit unorthodox to start. Traditionally, at the end of any practice period, we dedicate the merits of that practice to whomever it seems appropriate. But because my memory is so bad these days, I would like to actually begin by dedicating whatever merits occur and accrue in this evening's practice. First to Victor Medina, whose deep compassion, whose commitment, whose generosity to this center, whose tremendously open heart and deep practice have been such a tremendous inspiration for so many of us. May all of that serve him in the difficult time that he's going through. May he be peaceful. May he be free from mental suffering. May he be free from physical suffering. May he be happy. So, this talk is partly in gratitude to Victor. And partly just personally, I lost my younger sister last month on August 29th. So for Amy Gay, Goldring to Jolly. There was a time when you could name your child Gay. Uh, (laughs) Who died August 29th. May whatever merits accrue also benefit her in her transition and journey. Um, I'm calling tonight's talk Gratitude Revisited and for those of you who've been to a lot of these talks you know that last year I started to look at the question of gratitude in the face of deterioration and awfulness And it's a year later, and I kind of want to report in. (laughs) Um, I want to do, I do want to give a little bit of background about the project for people who have not been here a lot or have forgotten because there's so many things that happen at this center. For the past 12 years, We've been working with destitute AIDS patients in Cambodia. Our primary work is chaplaincy. It's emotional and spiritual support. For this, we use a range of things that begins with simply being present, extends through Reiki and healing touch, includes not only traditional Khmer Wat chanting, but there's a very beautiful and unique form of chanting in Cambodia that is in the process of becoming a lost art, and my staff are in the process of preserving it. Um, It's very, very, very gorgeous. It's called smoke. Um, 
we were not designed for material aid. When we began, everybody died. There were no antiretroviral medications. The cocktail of drugs was Tylenol, an antidiarrheal, and a, and a multivitamin. Uh, for 10 years, we watched the situation get better and better and better. You know, free antiretrovirals came in. People started living. They started rebuilding their lives. It was really tremendous. And then in 2010, the government expelled all of the major organizations who were responsible for that development and took over the projects themselves. And last year when I came in, I was kind of hoping that gratitude was going to be some kind of magic bullet for us, that if we developed enough gratitude that we'd be able to face what we were going to have to face. And I think a certain amount of that happens but it looks very different to me right now. And I want to talk about those differences, and I want to talk about gratitude not as some kind of magic bullet, but as some kind of healing force. Okay? The deterioration in conditions for AIDS patients this year was immeasurably worse than anything we could possibly have imagined. Um, There is no more free testing. There is no more free counseling. It is impossible to get on antiretrovirals for free. It costs to go to the hospitals. The hospitals do not have anything for you. Um, and I'm not even beginning to talk about the corruption. So what we've been looking at this year is people coming in at the edge of death who never even knew they had AIDS. And we haven't seen that since 2001. They come in when it's too late to save them, And all too often, the doctors are just simply not interested. Uh, At the beginning of the year, we tried, we we investigated the possibility of opening a hospice. Uh, The Mary Knoll organization had a hospice that they closed at the end of last year. We found out it really was too large a project for us. We are (laughs) 11 people, okay? That includes me. Um, my 10 Khmer staff and me. And creating a hospice was just not, it was just too large. So we found that out, and instead, we turned our energies to one of the most painful and unnecessary deaths that occurs, which is from cryptococcal meningitis. That's a fungus that lives in the body And when the immune system breaks down, it just blossoms and winds up going into the lining of your brain. And it's a terrible and painful death. And 
the medicine for it is expensive. So we took the money we had for the hospice and we decided to put it into that medicine. Um, But the doctors didn't have the money to do the spinal taps to find out if people had that or not. They didn't have the dextrose to put the medicine into. They didn't have the saline that's needed to flush the system after you receive the medicine. They didn't have sterile gloves for doing the spinal taps. So in the course of the year, we become sort of major providers of all of those things. And our cryptococcal meningitis program is saving lives because cryptococcal is not... Untreated cryptococcal is a very painful death. 80% of the time, if you get it early, if you get it fast, people recover. Okay? So that's why we picked it. Okay? We picked it to work with that. Normally, we don't interfere with the medical side of things. But this was one place where we felt it was very important. So we added that this year. In addition, um, we feed and provide supplementary money for 120 people in the prisons. You can get beriberi in Cambodian prisons even without digestive difficulties. Those are for AIDS and tuberculosis patients. We support about 50 people a month with multidrug-resistant tuberculosis for food. Um, we support about 225 patients who couldn't come into the city to get their medicines because they don't have money for transportation. Um, We support all of the patients we interact with twice a year with supplementary rice at the Khmer New Year and at the annual Festival for the Dead. Um, And we do all kinds of crazy things as they come up. And we're very, very lucky to be able to do these things. But it's been, without putting too fine a point on it, an extremely difficult year for all of us. As we've seen again and again, people coming to the hospitals as a last resort receiving no treatment and either dying after two or three days or just going home to die with their families. Um, Hospital populations have declined immeasurably. The National AIDS Hospital has gone from 60 to 30 patients. Um, Cosimac Hospital with beds for 18 only takes rich people now and normally has one or two patients. The worst week we had 
we had a hospital census of about 55 patients and we had six deaths. So what are we going to do with all that? I mean, my staff, seven of my staff have AIDS. And what they're saying is, the government wants us to die. And I said, no, I don't think so. I think if there's money to be made in your living, the government wants you to live. And if there's money to be made in your dying, the government doesn't care if you die. But I don't think the government actively wants you to die. I just don't think it matters to them. All right, have I bummed you out enough? Because <laughs> I want to talk about what do you do when this is going on? And I know for some of you who work in social services in America, and some of you who teach in the schools, and some of you who work with prison populations, that the stories I'm telling are not very far from the stories you could tell. Am I wrong? You know, it's not just the third world where these things are going on. Okay. So we started the year with gratitude practice, traditional Japanese gratitude practice, where you bring to mind all of the kind things that have been done for you that you never had to deserve or work for or earn. And traditionally what this does is open your heart to give back. What it does in Cambodia is make you feel guilty because you can't pay it back. So we had to start working to modify that one fairly quickly because instead of opening and freeing people's hearts, it added to the burdens. So we went back to meta practice a lot. Uh, meta practice always being good for whatever else you. And um, we've been studying in our Dharma classes this year, we've been studying the Eightfold Path. And we just kept plugging away and plugging away and plugging away and trying to bring as much compassion as possible into our interactions with the patients. And I think the turning point actually for my staff came before it came for me because they're much closer to the patients these days. And they should be. They're Cambodians, they're working from inside the system, they're, you know, you know, when I stopped being jealous of that, I began to be very appreciative of it. Um, My job is mostly to support them. (laughs) And then occasionally I get to see patients. But the turning point for me, actually, came around the question of right effort. And it came... You know, we divide our practices into two a lot. Okay, for those of you who don't know, the four aspects of right effort. Right effort is not about what you're doing. Right effort is about 
the mental condition you take or are in at any given moment and what you do with that. So the four steps of right effort are if you have disruptive emotions going on, you see them and you try to halt them. If there are disruptive emotions that are trying to arise, you try to bypass that. If there are helpful emotions that are trying to arise, you support that. And if there are helpful emotions that exist, you work to sustain them. Now, the foundation for all of this is to be able to see clearly and honestly what mental and emotional states are actually arising. If we're not willing to see our anger, to see our jealousy, to see our bitterness, to see our sense of betrayal, to see our fear, then the situation is completely unworkable. What we do is we just slather it over with a bunch of rhetoric. And I know we've all seen that, right? Anybody here not seen that? (laughs) But then, the fact is we don't have to stop there. Frequently we talk about pairs in practice. We talk about vipassana and concentration. We talk about wisdom and compassion. You know, we talk about these paired things that support each other tremendously. And this is probably in no way a unique discovery, but it was mine this year, that the seeing clearly and the working to transform the mind, the making effort to bring forth different mental states are paired in precisely that same way. You know, we have anger. In our pure vipassana practice, we see the anger, we locate it in our body, we allow ourselves to experience the sensations of it in our body, we allow it to change because we cease resisting it. In our meta practice, we intervene. May I be safe? Hmm? Yeah. That's an intervention. And so the turning point for me was to realize that right effort is about knowing when, how, when and how to intervene skillfully. 
and that it rests on the vipassana. It rests on the seeing clearly. So what I noticed in the course of the month that we worked on right effort, what we did in the in our we do a two-hour meditation, and then one week we did they do chanting training, and one week they have dhamma dhamma talk. So in the first meditation period, which is our vipassana period, I began by asking them simply to notice harmful emotional states, mental states that arose. Not to try to do anything, but not to block them, just to see them, to see them clearly. If they were persistent, of course, to make the vipassana turn, to see where they were in their body, to deal with them that way. Right? And then in then we do a long walking period, and then we have our meta period. And when we got to looking at right effort, it allowed all of us to draw on immediate recognition of the kind of mental state we were trying to work with. We did that for two weeks, and then in the second two weeks, we noticed positive mental feelings when they came up. Boy, was that nicer. (laughs) And as that happened... You know, and then when we shift into our meta practice or our gratitude practice, we we worked on gratitude practice in a different way. I I've been working very hard this year with my staff to help them become as supportive of each other as they possibly can. So they go around the room doing gratitude practice for each other. And sometimes I let them choose who they want, and sometimes I say okay, today it's for someone you have trouble with. (laughs) Okay. And sometimes we do it as meta and sometimes we do it as gratitude. And the two tend to reinforce each other. And I'm seeing it. I'm seeing a much stronger cohesiveness. Anyway, somewhere in there, I started letting go of my terrible clinging to the sense of betrayal that I'd been feeling all year as I watched our patients become totally helpless again. And that was really nice. Among other things, it made me a whole lot more effective with them. Um, So I want to tell you a kind of nice story to round it out. Nice in the context of what we do. By the way, there are two-page project descriptions, both on the Donna Box and in the general bunch of things. And we have a website with beautiful photos, wonderful photos. Go to the staff section and look at my staff work. Um, we have a patient named Chanti. We've known her on and off for many years. Um, she was doing fine on her antiretrovirals, and then her husband started drinking too much. And she started taking a 
recyclable chart, a cart around the city. Now, that is tough work. It's a heavy cart. You push it all over the city. You open up people's garbage, and you pull out the cans, and you pull out whatever's usable. And at the end of the day, if you're really lucky and have worked about 14 hours at this, you get about two and a half dollars. So she was doing that for about two and a half months, and she lost eight kilos, and she got uncontrolled diarrhea. And she was in one of the hospitals we, went, we go to, and we saw her there, and they couldn't do anything for her. And then she went home, and then she came to the National AIDS Hospital, and the doctors called and said, look, can you get her some Ringer's lactate? Can you get her some dextrose? Can we try and rehydrate her at least? And I went in, this was on a Friday, and I looked at her. And we've all seen patients like her recover incredibly. You know, she was skinny and she was hollow-eyed and she was dehydrated from the diarrhea but she had a strong will to live, and she had family support. And, you know, we've just all seen it. Sometimes the skinny ones really last longer. So I was optimistic. I said, sure, brought in tons and tons of stuff. On Monday, she went home to die. On Tuesday, we went to visit her at her house. Um, the family was not always poor. Uh, they had a television that were some pictures of her at Angkor Wat in her younger days. The reason she had started to take the cart around was to keep her three children in school. Two of the kids have AIDS and are getting treatment through a good program. The one doesn't. But she wanted to keep them in school, so that's what she was doing. So we get to her house, and it's got a zinc roof and, you know, walls you can punch through and a dirt floor, and she's on the bed, and the diarrhea is still completely, completely uncontrollable. We brought her soy milk, which we bring people, but she couldn't even drink that. And we stayed, and I was working with Reiki at her head, and my one of my two really fine practitioners was working at her feet and our director was working some with her and also translating and you know then they did long 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 chanting with her and we went and we got her a bunch of diapers so that the family could manage the diarrhea and we got her uh, oral rehydration fluid and we got that back with her. That was on Tuesday. And the next time we were scheduled to see her was Friday. And we heard she was doing better, that we should bring her soy milk because she could drink it. So that was great. And then on Tuesday, the next Tuesday, um, she was dying. And so she's gone. What was amazing to me 
and why I'm telling you this is not a totally depressing story. <laughs> Once you get used to the fact that this is what's happening with the patients and there's not a damn thing we can do about it, is that when we were there, not only she but we were peaceful and happy and at ease together and that her family was at ease and that the terror of dying was not what was going on in the room. What was going on in the room was everyone's capacity to love and to love freely and without reservation and without any need for a particular result. When we started working, we started working with the intention, knowing in those days, in those days it was just as bad and worse, we started working with the intention of bringing that. And it seems to me that all of us in the course of the year have managed to revitalize that intention so that we can be chaplains. We can accompany people. We can make processes which are beyond our ability to change as loving and as peaceful as it is possible for them to be. And I feel tremendous gratitude for that. So to come full circle, what I want to say is I no longer see gratitude as some kind of vaccine you give yourself so that you can go into those situations. I see gratitude as what you bring to bear not only for your own, our own healing, but for the healing of the people we serve. Someone said to me this year, you're so lucky you had all those years to develop the strength for what's going on now. Yeah? And at the time I kind of blew it off and now I don't. You know, we had nine years of steady improvement. Of course there were terrible problems. You know. But we had those years to develop grounding and strength. And now we're working on the ability to bring that. I feel tremendously grateful to my staff. I think my staff are among the most amazing people I know anywhere. I feel tremendously grateful for all the support and love 
that we get in so many ways that allows us to continue. And I no longer see gratitude as some kind of preventive. I see it as something we need to look to to renew and revitalize our compassion. So I thank you. And there's a little bit of time for questions. And I hope I didn't bum you out too much. It's hard to know where to draw the line on this stuff because (laughs) you don't want to know what we're used to. (laughs) Okay, questions? And you made the comment that he was named back when it was okay to Yeah. <laughs> very good question. Um, AIDS is not a gay... Very, very good question. That comment comes because I went to undergraduate school at Carnegie Mellon, and in the 80s, I lost so many people. I think that's part of why I work in AIDS. Because I lost... I have two best friends from college, and one sitting here, and the other, I don't know when he died. Um, so it really comes from that AIDS is not there are transsexuals and transvestites in Cambodia and they do experience discrimination but AIDS came the, the legend about AIDS is that it came in with the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia with all those foreign soldiers and it spread through people who were trafficked into forced sex. And by 1999, the rate among police was about 41%. The rate among military was in the 40s. The rate among sex workers was only in the 30s because they died faster. And we thought that we were going to look like Africa. And in you know, that there were going to be hundreds of thousands of AIDS orphans. All the predictions, when I started the project, all the predictions had us looking like the worst of Africa. And then this thing happened where India started giving Medicines Sans Frontiers antiretrovirals. And the whole thing turned around. And it took time for it to turn around and it took time for people to rebuild their lives. And but by 2005, 2006, you know, people didn't... In 2002, by the time you got on antiretrovirals, you'd lost a spouse, you'd lost a child, you found out you had AIDS because you lost a child or a spouse. You were near death several times. And your, your uh, CD4 count, your, your uh, T-cells, I mean, it was like two. And for people to turn their lives around and to begin to imagine living in the face of that, we spent two years doing lots and lots and lots of social work to help that transformation. But by 2006... You went in, you got tested, you got diagnosed, you got your antiretrovirals, and your life never collapsed like that, unless you were in a remote village or something. And 
AIDS treatment in 2008, I would have put the National AIDS Hospital in Cambodia up against any hospital in the world for the treatment of destitute people with AIDS. Medicine Sense Frontiers was pouring $10 million a year into that hospital. Um, and, you know, the, the Hope International Hospital is still functioning. They're outside the government system. And some of you know that just before the government took over, I, with some qualms that I no longer have, transferred all the AIDS patients from my staff out of other places and into that system so they could survive. And I felt guilty about doing it because I don't really believe that one life is worth more than another. But I couldn't bear it. I just simply couldn't bear, you know, watching them die. And we may yet have to, but... um, So no, it's not about stigmatization, it's about corruption and greed. There are millions and millions of dollars coming into the country and instead of going to to medicines, they're going to Lexuses. There are more Lexuses in Phnom Penh than there are in Palo Alto. A, A proper wedding gift for the children of the kleptocracy is a, a, a gas station on the road to the airport. <laughs> so, no, no, I had, you know, Amy didn't use her middle name for many, 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 many years, and it was only when I was writing death cards and, and sending out the information that I were gay, yeah, we used to be able to name people gay. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Yeah. Yes. I just wondered if you could speak more about dealing with the sense of betrayal and anger that must come up in you and in your staff with this uh, change okay. that you're facing. I mean, just you know, on a practice level, it seems so. Um, it seems so overwhelming. It's really hard. I mean, what can I tell you? It's it's really horrible, and you practice with it, and you practice with it, and you practice with it, and you sit there, and you you know. You breathe, <laughs> and it comes up, and you note it, and it comes up, and you note it, and it comes up, and you note you notice whether it's betrayal or rage, and where the betrayal feels in your body rather than the rage, and where the rage feels in your body. And where the part of it that's just simple hurt is. And you just practice with it. You know, and then you finish your meditation period and you you go play computer scrabble or (laughs) curl up in bed and cry. I wish I could cry more. If I could cry more, I'd be a lot healthier. (laughs) You just practice with it the same way you practice with everything else. It just It's just been a brutally hard year for all of us. And it amazes me that I could look around 
two weeks ago and go out, you know, with my staff to see Chanti, and I could go here, and I could go there. And, you know, when they come in, we assemble, and then after a while we chant and we meditate, okay? And that when people were downstairs assembling, and I was, I stay up in my office a lot so they can talk freely, but I can hear the laughter. I can hear the warmth. I can hear the love. A very dear friend of mine gave them a three-day workshop on planning. But when we had to give up the hospice, the hospice was like a buffer for us, you know? And when we had to give that up, I didn't know how we were going to make it. So I don't have any shortcuts. You know, it's just practice. Just, you know, that's what's there and that's what you practice with. And, you know, the Buddha promised us that if we do the work, our hearts will eventually become lighter. You know, Gil is fond of saying, you know, the Four Noble Truths are a medical model. And the first is, you know, diagnosis, and the second is etiology, and the third is prognosis, and the fourth is, is prescription, right? And he's very fond of saying that the third is the good news. There's a way out of suffering. And I'm very fond of saying the fourth is the bad news, which is how hard it is. <laughs> I mean, I wish I, I wish I had some, you know, but, you know, the Buddha got there long before any of us. And there's nothing new about suffering. And there's nothing new about the path out of suffering. It's just, you know, what are the causes and conditions and circumstances in which we learn how to work the path. And... For whatever my comic reasons, um, I'm always attracted to the, the dramatic ones. <laughs> Next life, I want to be able to do it peacefully. <laughs> yeah. Next, anyone else? Yeah. Are these women? Are, are these? children of this woman still in school and what would it take to keep them there? Two of them are under the care of New Hope for Cambodian children because they have AIDS and they're going to be fine. Their father is still alive. He's still drinking but (laughs) um, they'll be kept in school. They'll be okay. And if something happens to make that crash we have a friend who runs an orphanage south of the city, who's always good for an extra kid or or two. Uh, We had some really, really hard cases we sent to him in the last couple of years. One little girl who'd been dragging a hedgeye cart around the street, she was seven years old, and bringing the money to her mommy dying in the hospital. And she has a two-year-old little brother that everybody adores and nobody adores her. And... She was sleeping under their house and being 
fed by the neighbors, and we are sure that she was raped many, many, many times when she was... Anyway, she's down there now, and she's recovering, and she's in school, and she's doing just fine. And, you know, the deeper recovery will take longer, but she's safe. Yeah. So I, we're, not, we're not unduly worried about the kids here. But, um, yeah, but there are plenty of kids to worry about. And there's some very good organizations working with them. Thank you for asking. Anyone else? It's 9.05, so you probably need to go get a drink. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so very much.